Hello, it's me, Graham Norton, and of course, it's time for another edition of the Graham Norton Retro's podcast. Let's see what we've got today. Ah, yes, Giovanna Fletcher is in, chatting about her new role in the UK tour of Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Joanne Froggett is telling us all about her brand new drama, exploring the impact of COVID on the NHS. That's called Breathtaking, and it'll be on ITV. Show chef Martha is picking rhubarb. Interesting. She's got some burrata to go with it as well. Lucky her. And where would we be without problems? Maria's bringing in the post bag now, so it's time to solve your dilemmas in Graham's Guide. Hello, Maria. Hey, Maria. What, 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 what? A fan letter has flooded in. Get out of the pool. Yes, for you, for you. Uh, This is uh, from Sue, and she says it might have been about two years ago she emailed in about being a uh, 27... 27.4. No, 24.7. Yeah, 24.7. What's but, wrong with you? Well, no, it's Britain. 27.4. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's wrong with Sue? Uh, Carer. <laughs> What's uh, wrong with Sue? And uh, apparently we gave great advice. Did we? Uh, it took about 18 months to sort herself out. But she's just listened to your book, Bumps in the Road. Loved it. I will listen again in a few months. No wonder you give great advice. Your last chapter resonated with me and I'm trying my best to be positive for the future. I have taken responsibility for my future as a 72-year-old. I can't ride bikes anymore, but I can do other things. My best wishes to you both. Thank you very much from Sue. Oh, thank you, Sue. That's lovely to hear. And, you know, it's nice to hear people reading, no, hearing the Audible version. Yes, you can't read the Audible. No, you can't. It's <laughs> <laughs> on, yeah, still out, still out, if anybody would like it. It's still there. <laughs> still there, in bookshops and on sites and things like that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, no, not very good with praise. Can you read it again? Um, no. Uh, what I wanted to say was, last night on your televisual show... Oh, yes. I mean, you had to be the ringmaster, because at one point you had nine people on your sofa. It was crazy, because we had we had, we had an amazing couch uh, of Jodie Foster, Olivia Coleman, Lorraine Kelly and Wanda Sykes so we were totally happy with that yeah yeah and then uh, the, the Dune 2 premiere was coming along and they said oh do you want some people from that so we were a bit greedy so yeah okay so then so you had Austin Butler yeah and uh, Josh Brolin yeah uh, and then you had in my head in my head and I, I, I felt so bad I couldn't say this to him but when oh. all I see when I see him is I just think oh you're Barbara Streisand's son-in-law that's all that's all I see and also he went out with Minnie Driver I did know that. Yeah. Yes. I think oh, it, was yeah. engaged, it might have been engaged. Maybe trivia. Driver. Trivia. And then you had um, Calvin Harris and Rag, Rag and Bone, Bone Man. Man. So squishy, squashy sofa. And I was thinking, Graham is having to ringmaster this like a conductor. And But everyone played their part, I felt. I must say, I did give myself a heavy pour of wine before that show. Did you? Yes. Because if you lose control of that, you know, if you mess up and then the auto cue goes down or anything, you just think, what? What am I doing here? Well, then we just have to stop and start again. But no, it was fun. And actually, they're all lovely guests and they're all very nice to each other and they're all kind of fans of each other. So it was was easy. Yes, and I'm quite jealous of you having seen the last episode of the Jodie Foster True Detective. Do you want to tell you what happens? No! (laughs) No, yeah, I do obviously, but in the in the break. Can Man, I also do? If I just did it on air now. No. Well, it's interesting because you don't, don't see do it that. coming. You don't do that. Oh, well, the last thing I want to say is your stylist has pulled it out of the bag for the front of Attitude magazine. <gasps> I'm a cover star. You are a cover star, and you are um, Attitude magazine's 101 peeps, 101 peeps. You are the number one. Of, I'm not even in the hundred. I think they made a list of 100 people. And then I came along and went, oh, make it 101, shove 
of him on. I think that's what happened. Oh, sure. No, but it's great. And the, the whoever the photographer was, um, is it's captured a side of you. I mean, it's determination, it's attitude, basically. But I like the fact normally when you see photos of you, you're smiling. But this is, you know, I didn't get to be 101 peeps without <laughs> hard work, mate. Here's me. I love doing a photo shoot where you done for a smile. It's so much easier. But it's oh, also it's now that we're getting a bit older that we're doing, you know, people say, oh, we want to see your character. And I think, no, I've got resting B face. Yeah, char- characters written all over my face. <laughs> Which bit of the character do you want? Yeah, how much do you want? <laughs> no, but it's a great, great photograph. Even if people don't buy Attitude magazine, just, just have a look wa- at past, walk past a newsstand. And is it, would you say it's a lemony snicket suit? Lemon. Oh, oh, I think it is lemon. It yeah. is a, and not everyone can wear a lemon, Maria. Certainly I can't. <laughs> you nearly made me split my coffee there. Not everyone can wear lemon. No. Shall I stop speaking it's now? It's not everyone's friend. It's not at all. Oh, you've gone with lemon. Mm. Do you know, there's someone getting ready to our wedding right now going, I'm, oh, I'm wearing lemon. I'm wearing lemon and he's wearing blue. What's wrong with that? Hey! Uh, enjoy your wedding if you're wearing lemon. Virgin Radio. Oh, I've been cycling today. Do you know, I, no, I won't go on. What? No, go on, quickly. I was running late on uh, Tuesday, uh, no, Wednesday when I was getting yeah, yeah. over to BBC, you know, the Oh, TV yeah, centre. I know where the BBC is. Left Wapping, I got there in 40 minutes. Can you imagine? My little legs were a blur the whole way. I worry for you. That's amazing, isn't it? That is amazing. That's quite good. And did you have the lights behind you? The you, wind. The wind and the green light. Sometimes you, you go green, green all the way. Well, you know, I, I had some luck with the green lights, but also a lot of it's through the park. So, it, you know, so I only hit tourists and things. So. <laughs> Yeah, they don't count. People have turned off because they're so bored. Here we are. Dear Graham and Maria, my wife and I have been married for four years and together for nine. We're happily married, but my dilemma is with my dad. He has never met my wife and has never shown any interest in wanting to. In fact, whenever I go and see him or speak to him, he doesn't really acknowledge the fact that I'm married. He didn't come to our wedding and around the time acted like it wasn't happening. One Christmas we went round to the house to see him and my brother and he was ill and just hid in his bedroom the whole time. He isn't really the most social person anyway. He never goes out or anything, but this is ridiculous. Hard agree. My big worry is that there's a racial element to this. My wife is half Jamaican and half English and my dad is a fairly old-fashioned man. When I go and see him, he is the type to make comments about wokeness and lefties, etc. My wife and I are looking to start a family and don't really have a huge extended family of our own. For me, it's just dad and my brother and my wife. She just has her mum who we have a great relationship with. It does feel lonely sometimes, and it would be so great if my dad was more friendly and open. I don't think he'd even react if I went and told him he's going to be a granddad. I get so jealous because pretty much all our friends have these big, friendly families, and when I tell them my dad hasn't met my wife and didn't come to our wedding, they just laugh. I'm not sure how to approach this, as I am very close with my dad and he's done a lot to help me over the years, but we're the typical English male family who never talk about feelings. And that is from Will in Sussex. Will in Sussex, this makes me furious. Never talk about your feelings. I'm very close to my dad. 
how have you let him get away with this? And you say, basically, he's an old-fashioned man. No, he's not. He's an old racist. Let's say how it is. He didn't come to your wedding because you were marrying somebody who wasn't, let's say, in the old-fashioned term, to his approval. And I really, really am furious with that. But I'm also furious with you, Will, for not speaking up. You say you're very close with your dad. Well, then why haven't you ever said, Will, Dad, it's very hurtful to me and wife's name that you, A, never came to our wedding or gave us a reason why, and never come and visit us, pretend you're ill when we come and say, is it, you know, I mean, let's you have to call him out on this. When you say, you know, he's he's nice and he's done a lot to help you over the years, I think this is unforgivable. This is 2024. This is unforgivable. It was always unforgivable, but really, Will, you've let this go on together for nine years, married for four, and your dad still has... I mean, yeah. I am enraged by this. I don't know how you feel. Well, I get the feeling, Will, that you, you've got on with your dad so far and he's done lots of nice things for you because you have never Step challenged him. Mm. You've never challenged him. You've never, when he says things about, you know, wokeness or lefties or whatever, you never, you never say anything. You just let him rant on. And we often do that with older people because you kind of think, what's the point? Now there's a point. Now there is a point because someone you love, he is rejecting and I kind of think you need to be bold here Will because in a way I think you you need to stick to the people who do love you and you are lucky you've got a brother that you seem to get on with and your wife has a mom that uh, you both get on with and if you're thinking about having kids then you'll have kids and yes you won't have the big Waltons family but just you know adding one racist dad to that mix doesn't really turn it into anything uh, great. So I think just count your blessings, be happy with what you have. You you aren't going to be, you know, a, a TV ad for Bisto. That, it, that's, that's the way it is. So I just think, you know, be very happy that you love your wife. Be very happy that you've got other people in your life. And uh, I, I, I would throw the towel in on this man because he's... Uh, he You know, that, it's so... Oh, it's just so horrible. Like, it sounds like it's he didn't even... Get, aggressive. It's, it's, it's really aggressive. aggressive. But, like, the hiding in his bedroom... Grow, what That's are you just, doing? That is so cowardly, isn't and, it? And not to go to the wedding. I mean, uh, did he even come up with an excuse for not going to the wedding? It just Well, Will seems to have let him off the hook on every single level. When you say you're very close with your dad, no, you're not. No, Will, you're not. Otherwise, you would have said, why aren't you coming to my wedding? You've let this go on for nine years with t- typical English male family who never talk about their feelings, and yet you're writing to us and that you're saying you don't, you're, you're jealous of your friends with big families... You know, you have to get off the pot here, Yeah, and also, Will. you imagine how cross Will's wife is. I oh, would be livid I would, if I was yeah, her. I would be cross with Will you, yeah, no, if I was the wife. Because I would, I would want Will to shut up about this. Let's just, you know, either challenge this man and, you know, make him, make him say, I never want to meet your wife. I never want to meet your wife. And make wife. him say it why. Make him say why. Because she is not who I approve of. You've married someone who is black. That's basically what he's saying, and I think that you have—he's a bully and he's a coward. Both of those things normally go together, and you have to call out that behaviour. I'm really 
infuriated by and, this. And if this man is no longer in your life after that, I can't see it's a big loss. But at least then you'll have some self-respect, Will, and maybe your wife will have some respect for you too because you have let this go on for so long and you finally called him out. Hiding in his room, that tells you everything. That's just... Oh, it's so lame. Uh, if I think the, the Virgin Radio listeners will be equally infuriated. They're lighting their torches now I, and <laughs> storming the building. I, know. I will make them march. <laughs> now responses, part one. Now follow. And my favourite responders today will be getting... Oh, doesn't this sound great? Waitrose pizza and Prosecco dine-in. Yes. Uh, you get a hand-stretched wood-fired pizza with fermented sourdough topped with tomato and basil sauce, mozzarella cheese, salami and sliced red chilli. And, and that's not all, you get a bottle of San Leo Narello Mascalese Garganega Rosato Rosato NV. I mean, with Prosecco, in it? I mean, how big's the label to get all that on? <laughs> Anyway, it's pink Prosecco. That's what it is. And a pizza. How lovely. Annie in Wiltshire. Dear Will, I'm wondering if the reason you keep in with your dad is because of his help. I wonder what help he gives you. He seems to have some sort of hold. Who accepts this behaviour? Unacceptable, Will. Why would your wife even want to be part of this now? End it. Support yourself and be loyal to your wife. I mean, I did think that when he said he's been really helpful over the years. I just thought, "Mm, that probably is. And maybe you're waiting for some sort of, you know, payday. But uh, listen, at the way it's going, even if you, you know, broker some sort of peace with this man, he's already writing you out of the will. So why bother? Um, are you angry, Will? I think you need to get, get in touch with your anger to help sort and motivate you to deal with your dad. Counselling might help. If not, to help access uh, anger, it's time to man up, Will. And that's from Karen. Uh, Nick in Yorkshire says, Will, put your wife above all others in all things. If you change to that perspective, you will see that your dad has chosen the path he is on. If anything, he is being rewarded by getting away with disgusting views. How do you think you will feel towards his possible grandchildren? There is a reason he is on his own. Protect your wife. Uh, Madeline Hampshire says, uh, Will, your dad is not a close, helpful man at all. He is a self-centred bigot. And both you and your brother have enabled his behaviour by allowing it to continue. You should have called him out on this long ago. You should have defended your wife. Be a proper husband and do it now. Explain that either he behaves properly and respectfully from now on or he won't be included in future family gatherings. If daddy throws a tantrum and goes into a sulk, then leave him to it. Well said, Madeline Hampshire. Uh, Sarah in Northumberland says, Graham and Maria have nailed the advice and should share the prize. <gasps> really? Uh, so pleased will not let off the hook. I am shaking with fury. Um, all right. Thank you very much for all your advice. Um, I tell you what, Madeline in Hampshire, she's going to get the uh, pizza and Prosecco dine-in. Uh, well done you. Thank you for that. Um, here's a second problem. Can I just say, I love this problem. I love it. Okay, great. Dear Graham and Maria, please can you help me? My partner is lovely, but he has a pair of slippers that I find disturbing. They're 16 years old. Yes, you heard that right, 16 years old. Held together with duct tape and have holes in the big and little toe. I think they're at least 50% tape and are well past the six repairs they've had. He already has a nice pair of similar slippers as a perfect replacement, but he refuses to change them. I've asked him why. 
he hasn't swapped. And he says he'll swap them when the old ones wear out. What can I do? This isn't the biggest problem in my life, but it is the one I'd most like advice on. And that is from Jenny in Cheddar. Oh, have we all got someone we know who is that obstinate? Yes, we have. And I love that it's about a pair of slippers that have got that are basically all duct tape. And there's a really simple way to get round this, Jenny in Cheddar. Um... Oh, no. you know what I'm going to say, Grinny. No. You know what I'm going to say. You, they'll get divorced. Shush. No. When he's off at work, you take the slippers and you put them in a bucket in the garden. It's metal. And you set fire to them. And when he says, where are my slippers? You say, there they are. You'll probably still wear them. He'll <laughs> just rub some ash on his feet and shuffle around the house, mucking up your cream carpet. He'll just add more duct tape, basically. Because that is the sort of male behaviour that is infuriating. I mean, people will know. People around the country will have a partner that does this with an item of clothing. You know, he's got perfectly lovely coat, but chooses to wear this one, jumper, trousers, whatever. But the slippers seems to be one of those things that people will not throw slippers away. No, well, they are nothing, offensive to your eyes. There's something so lovely about an old pair of slippers. No, not when they're half duct tape. Jenny, he that is offensive them. to your eyes. I don't care. He's got a new pair of slippers that are exactly the same as the old ones, but not with the duct tape. It's like, he's. why does he insist on looking like a homeless person? Because he loves his slippers. No, no. Look, I, well, I think there's no. two things going on here, Jenny. Jenny, one... Okay, so, you could look at it this way, that he should see how much this is upsetting you and go, oh, aren't I, aren't I silly? I'll throw away my slippers no. and I'll get some new ones. Or you, Jenny, go, my, this is, these slippers make my husband happy. Why am I being so weird about it? I should just let this go. That's, it's a, but you are in a couple. This, these slippers, it's either he is going, these upset her so much I'm going to throw them away, or you go, he loves them so much, I'm going to give up on no, this. No, he's going, these upset her so much, I'm never going to get them rid of them. You know how some people, when you've been married a long time in a couple, you just do things to make the other person uh, furious? I think you just, be, you act, um, you know, unilaterally on this one. No, you cannot throw them away. No, don't throw them away. Set fire to them. And I set fire to the slippers. Why would you set fire to them? That's so... No, like, because it's symbolic. In the same way that it's... It's, it's symbolic symb of our house is burning down, our marriage is <laughs> no, over, I, said, I packed everything up. I said up. put them in the garden in a metal bucket. It's symbolic in the same way he's refusing to get rid of them is symbolic to him. This is a power struggle in a marriage and about the slippers. You know, it is always... Jenny, do not listen to this. It is all if the you, tiniest things. If you want to be married by this time next week, do not listen it's to this. It's the tiniest things. I, I mean... Tiniest things? There's a fire in the garden no. and my, it's my slippers. No, that is... Tiny, but you know, what about if people come round to visit you, Jenny? And is he sitting there like a homeless person with duct tape slippers on? Yeah, and he's going, I know they look off, but I love them. No, 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 no. I this is unacceptable behaviour. We're disagreeing on this. You're saying love him enough to love his duct tape slippers. Ooh, boo no, 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 not that. You don't love the duct tape slippers. You just get past it. You just kind of go, look, they're making him happy, so they're not going to upset me. You say get past it. She's written to us, two old radio turns, with this problem. <laughs> two old slippers on the radio. <laughs> We're held together with duct tape. I'm right, you're left. <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, well, Jenny, I... 
I feel you should care less. Let's find out what the Virgin listeners think. Dead responses part two. And again, my favorite responder will be getting that Waitrose pizza and Prosecco dine in. Delicious. Jerry, he's wearing a ratty old cardigan in Glasgow. Uh, leave the slippers alone. Woe betide you if you've been them. I mean, that's what I said. You cannot throw them away. You cannot, cannot, cannot throw them away. There will be hell to pay if that happens. Uh, the slipper issue. Can you get a friend with a dog to come around and chew them to death and take one away with them? That's from Claire and Mosley. Trouble is, the dog would want the new ones. A dog would want to chew duct tape. That's... <laughs> There's no, there's no pleasure in that. Uh, yeah, I think I think the dog's going to leave them alone. Uh, Alicia and Leo in Chalfont. Dear Graham Maria, get the slippers set in epoxy resin and place them on the mantelpiece. Then the 16 years of memories can stay and he can wear nice new slippers. I mean, that does like something you'd see at the Tate. <laughs> Jenny's husband's slippers. That's what it says. Uh, I, I, personally... I would like that. I would like if if you kind of commemorate them and keep them forever. Don't bin them, but make do make an artwork with them. I love that idea. I'm not sure if he will. He may not like that. What a brilliant, sustainable man. Keeping wearing the slippers until they're utterly worn out. Just let it become a joke. Stick googly eyes on them. Do not destroy them. Damaging someone else's belongings is never okay. Catherine Norfolk, I agree with you. Uh, Carlton Kingston, uh, take the slippers to that popular TV show, The Repair Shop. Cry a bit and get them repaired properly. Then give them back to your husband. I would pay good money to see that episode. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, do it. Take them to the repair shop. Jay Blades, yeah, handing them back on a cushion. Thank you so much. Uh, Moxie in Mallorca Oh Moxie I can see where you're called Moxie uh, Moxie says Buy some itching powder And sprinkle it in them And then he will think They got so bad That bugs have moved in And watch how fast he bins them But never be tempted To tell him what you did Or he may decide To get revenge one day I think this will be The fastest solution Good luck <laughs> Moxie says from a distance Good luck everybody Oh now I'm torn Lots of good advice there Um I think the repair shop tickled me most. So, uh, Carol in Kingston is going to get the uh, pizza and Prosecco dine-in. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. She's here. Time to welcome my first guest of the day, Giovanna Fletcher. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm Well, I'm good because, uh, you know, at the end of this show, I go home and lie down. But you're going <laughs> off to do two shows. Two shows today, two shows tomorrow. Yes, We've, we're in the middle of, uh, I think, three nine-show weeks. I mean, we didn't get into show business for this, Giovanna, <laughs> did we? Some days would be lazy. Yes. What is this? You're supposed to be having champagne brunches. <laughs> yeah. Not entertaining the masses. I know. Uh, so, I'm thinking, have you done a musical before? Uh, so Tom, so my husband Tom Fletcher, he writes books and one of his, uh, he wrote as a musical, so The Christmas Horus, and we put that on stage at the Hammersmith Apollo for three weeks, maybe six years ago. Uh, so we did that. So it was a bit, we played ourselves and then fell into character. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but this is the first sort of West End musical. And it's a different thing. You know, I'm used to plays where if things go a trifle awry, you kind of find each other and you move through the moment. Whereas yeah. with a musical, if you miss something, it carries on. The orchestra's going. They're yeah. going. They are not going. Oh, come back, G. Come uh, back. Tell everyone uh, what musical it is. It's Everybody's Talking About Jamie. We're at the Peacock Theatre until the 23rd of March. 
March, and I play Miss Hedge. Now, uh, mm. the thing is, because, I, because I've seen the musical, I've saw the documentary, I've seen the musical, I saw the movie, so I feel like I know it, but of course there are people who don't know this show. Yeah. So if you don't know anything about this, mm-hmm. uh, go, tell us about it. Uh, so, uh, essentially, it is about uh, a, bo- a boy called Jamie New who wants to go to his prom wearing a dress. Essentially, that is, that is it in a nutshell. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk. He's, they're in year 11. There's a lot of talk about what they want to be when they're older. He would like to be a drag queen. Um, and he doesn't feel like he can vocalise that. Um, but he does. And it's all about him kind of building up the courage and the confidence to do that. However, school are very much saying, no, you can't do that. That's not what you should be doing. And my character, I feel like she's, um, she's kind of portrayed as a bit of a villain. But I, I kind of feel like... As a teacher, it's so hard uh, to... I think there are some teachers who just shouldn't be teachers. Yeah. uh, Who you just go, do you even like children? Uh, However, I don't think she's one of those. I think she's been with these kids for so long and actually what she wants is for them to be realistic about their future goals. Manage your expectations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's not one of those, you can be anything you want to be, teachers. She's not that. Um, And I think uh, Jamie just kind of symbolises something very different for her. Yeah. You know, I think maybe in an outside social setting, she would love him. However, in this school setting where she's trying to keep everyone in line, someone who's very much not in line and doing their own thing and knows who they are uh, is a bit problematic for her. And it's based on this documentary. It's a yeah. real story. And I, I met Jamie. Jamie Campbell, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you met him? Have you been no, to... no, but I've literally watched him on like the Lorraine sofa for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There he is. Uh, is is Miss Hedge, is she a, a real person? Uh, well, he was told that he couldn't go to the prom and they when he did arrive, they were very much like, you can't go. Um, but I think it's, for me, it was one of those moments where... The school coming together in the way that they do, and everyone actually seeing how how Jamie was accepted and is in this show, that is where the love and everything—it's just amazing. And actually, you know, kind of toppling over what those expectations are from teachers and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I I haven't kind of gone. What teacher is this? Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. let's go and study. Let's talk yeah. her. I'm going to cut my hair and uh, <laughs> yeah. dye it grey. You know, I've always it. wanted a part like that though, where they're like, cut it off, dye it red. Um, but yeah, no, she's got a very mean top bun going on. And the audiences for this, because I imagine there's lots of returning people, because yeah. people don't just like this musical; they love it. They love it. They want to see different people doing different roles. They come back time and time again. And what's interesting, actually, the look for me, the last two things that I've done. So 222 um, was, you know, we left people feeling quite scarred. It's a ghost uh, story. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Wish You Were Dead was a bit of a, um, you know, crime who done it kind of thing. It's just nice to do something where at the end everyone is up on their feet and they, it's so life affirming. It's, it's so brilliant. You know, it feels, it's such a feel good show. Uh, it's just nice to have everyone smiling, <laughs> clapping yeah. and singing along at the end. But it does, it comes with people who uh, are massive fans of the show and have seen every single version of it. And because you are so busy, you do all these other things, you write, you podcast, everything. Mm. Are you able to fit all of that in around being in a show? Yes, I can. Writing, I've realised no. When I was on tour last year, I said to myself, you know, I'm not going to be at home with the kids. It'll be the perfect <laughs> time to write. No, it is not. It is absolutely not the perfect 
good time to write. Uh, whereas podcasting is great because if you've got good Wi-Fi, you can do it. You can, you can do it rem- remotely and we've had some good chats. And I think that's, I know we don't like talking about COVID, but I think COVID really taught us all that actually, that you can do those sorts of things yeah. remotely. Um, so that's, a, you know, that's nice to have actually that little bit of something else. Yeah, some, th- um, some things are nice face to face, I think. Yeah. But there's some things, sometimes, like, sometimes I know go to a meeting and I think, why are we doing this? Why, why isn't this on this Zoom? This could have been an email. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing worse than yeah. stepping away from a meeting that you've travelled for. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that as well. I like having that little bit of balance and, and, and you know, being able to step into my office, into my cupboard or into the studio is a nice feeling. Um, but also because that's something that I've created that is totally yeah. mine. So it doesn't feel like you're doing, like, with the, I feel like with the show, you are you're serving other people, you know, you're doing your director's notes or whatever that is. Whereas with the podcast, it's like, wow, I set the rules. Yeah, (laughs) it's different, different pressure. And I suppose it's the same with writing as well, because writing, is that is your baby. Well, you you co-write some things with Tom. Yes, so at the moment we are uh, talking about Even Man 3, so we've done a trilogy together. Um, But again, I think writing is an amazing thing when you're in your your draft stages where it's just you. I feel like it's the biggest piece of work you've ever handed over to a teacher when you're handing it to your editor. But that moment where you're creating and you're just getting the words down and exploring your character... I love that. There's nothing like it. Because how many have you done in those? Six? I have done, yeah, six uh, pieces of fiction, two non-fiction, two novellas, and then the two with Tom. Yeah. I mean, if so someone had told 13. you if someone had told you 10 years ago that you were going to produce all that stuff... I know, but even now, I look, I read it, and I don't know if you do this as well when you're reading yours. I read some of it sometimes, and I'm like, I wrote that. Like, that blows my mind. Especially since I, I feel like when I first started writing, because I went to drama school, you know, and I pretended to be a penguin, you know, for one term. So the fact that I now write books, to me, it's mind-blowing. But what I realised early on is that we come with a different set of tools. And actually, if we use that toolkit wisely, we can create great stuff. Uh, so rather than using, like seeing it as a hindrance, using it. Um, so I absolutely love sitting down and, and creating those. But I am on book 13 now, so I'm like, ugh. The, wow. the pressure is still there. I think every time you sit down and write a book, you're like, can I, can I do this? Well, isn't it, it? I think it's a kind of the pressure changes. Like yeah. in the beginning, it's can I do this, and then the pressure becomes kind of can I do this again? Yeah. Like, do I have another story do in you know me? What? Even in the second book, I can remember the first book. So Billy and me, when I sat down and wrote that, I had no publisher, no agent, I had no expectation of anyone reading it, and I just wrote that book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had no kids either, so the freedom to, like, to write it was amazing. Then the second book, because I got a two-book deal with Penguin. So the second book, I was writing that, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can. Like, was it a total fluke? A penguin going to ask for their money back? I've already turned it into bookshelves behind me. What are, they gonna, what, what are we going to do? But you just push through, and there's an amazing thing, I think, that happens creativity, like creatively, where you can feel like you've got the best idea, then you sit down and write it, and then the, that confidence kind of wanes a little bit, and then, oh, my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. Oh, no, maybe it is good. Oh, no, it's terrible. And then you push through, and then you're like, no, actually. Yeah. The, the, but you have to go through those waves. And I think that's the difference, isn't it, having a book deal? Yeah. If, if you were doing Billy and Me and you went through that, yeah. you'd have stopped. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's the best piece of advice, actually. So when I was um, 
thinking about writing a book, I met an author called Dorothy Coombson and she was saying to me, didn't know that I was thinking about it at all, but she said to me about when people find out that she was an author, they'd always say to her, oh, I'd love to write a book. That's one thing I would love to do. And she was always saying, well, sit down and do it then. Because if you don't, if you like, that's the only way of knowing if you actually you like the actual process of writing a book, if you're any good at it. Um, so that was the best thing to kind of get out of my head. But it is different writing with Tom. Like writing with two people is, is very, very different because you have to work in a very different way. Um, but you also have to hand things over when you're still at your, oh no, this isn't very good stage. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you have to just trust each other. And are you good at giving each other notes or is that, <laughs> or is that a total talks? We are. What we do first, actually, we sit down and we, for a month and we just plan. So we really heavily plan each each um, chapter because we we throw, uh, we go between different characters' points of view of, of telling the story. So we have to sit down and plan. Um, however, then, so you basically sit down and write that chapter that you've talked about and then you hand it over to the next person to do it from Bram. So that's one of the characters Tom writes from. Um, and we've only have ever had it once where Tom went to me, oh no, you've pushed that too far. I think we should cut that bit out. And I was like, okay. Two weeks later, he gives me his next chapter. He's taken what I what oh. was too far to put it in his. Oh. But it's like the editors then took it out. So we were, <laughs> was right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. And also I think... I, I think this is something that drama school taught us both, actually, because we met at Sylvia's when we were kids, is not to be too precious about what you create. You can be passionate about it, but yeah. don't be precious because everyone is on the same page about trying to make what is being created the best it can be. Yeah, and actually that's what drama school drama school at its best should yes. do. It's kind yeah. of, you know knock the pressures out of you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I feel like that's why I like things like maths, though. Maths, you can get a right answer. And sometimes I feel like I need a right answer. Whereas when you're creative, there is no right answer. You've there just got to feel your way. Uh, audiences can see you getting it right this afternoon, <laughs> this very afternoon, at the Peacock Theatre here in London. Everybody's talking about Jamie. People love that show. It is back. So if you haven't seen it before, if you have seen it before and loved it, uh, you can go again. Everybody's talking about Jamie.co.uk uk for tickets and you can catch giovanna until the 20 does it keep going after you leave it does it goes on tour uh so there's three uh three new people coming in but sam bailey's coming in to take over miss hedge kevin clifton's coming in oh wow to take over from johnny partridge so it would be a, a slightly different show but I, I i will be looking forward to coming back and watching watching the newbies on stage absolutely oh, well listen thank you so much for coming in to talk to us always a pleasure never a chore uh thank you very much giovanna fletcher still to come joanne frogger will be telling us about her brilliant new it TV drama breathtaking but first let's see why that rhubarb has been pickling ding ding here's show chef martha with a trolley now let gourmands rejoice she's here everyone it's the arrival of show chef martha collison happy saturday to you happy saturday graham how are you i'm very well in yourself i am yeah very joyously good thank you good 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 the aromas coming from your side of the studio are intense and delicious <laughs> i'm glad delicious uh, yeah, yeah, they're intense <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's in the big bowl? So this is, it's a salad. We're entering salad era, making them... Of course, February. Delicious Famously, and fun. It's, 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 a, it's just such a cliche, your February salads, yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like we've had Valentine's Day that's been and gone. Everyone's overindulged. They're thinking, what can I do? Which is a little bit more light, but, you know, we are sticking a burrata in the middle of it. So, you know, still got a bit of indulgence. But this is a burrata with quick pickled rhubarb and basil oil on a nice bed of leaves. Wow. Uh, is there a difference between quick, quick pickling and slow pickling, apart from the speed? I, I believe just the speed. Just the speed, <laughs> yeah. The the intensity of the pickling, I would imagine. Because when you pickle something like a cucumber and you want to leave it in its brine for a week, 
it changes the texture slightly but rhubarb is perfect and we're cutting it nice and small but if you wanted to do big long strips of it then i would recommend leaving it a little longer and i'll ask because you might know is this rhubarb season it is rhubarb season ah. it, well it's forced rhubarb season which is the lovely pink rhubarb so the salad is full of these little pink little nuggets of rhubarb oh gorgeous so it grows in its little kind of candlelit dark caves not caves but like kind of con- contained areas <laughs> <laughs> not actual caves well in Waitrose's own caves <laughs> in my own caves um, and then in the summer you get the green rhubarb which grows outside and is a little bit tougher so this is perfect for pickling because it's not got too many of those kind of stringy stringy strands it's really kind of nice and toothsome okay alright and but and is it sweeter the pink stuff I don't I think it's maybe very slightly sweeter but you definitely want to add sugar to whatever you're doing with rhubarb. It's the kind of thing which is quite, you know, ooh, that's very sharp if I'm just eating it raw. Okay. And a burrata, uh, what is its relation to mozzarella? It's some sort of link, isn't there? Yes. So a burrata is essentially a mozzarella, whereas instead of just making it into a ball of the original cheese, they kind of tear it open at the last moment, fill it with cream and shredded mozzarella, and then close it back up again. So you'll get basically mozzarella, but full of extra nice, creamy things. It's like cheesy cheese. Extra, it's like, yeah. <laughs> extra dairy, dairy. Mm, <laughs> mm. Uh, tell us all about it. So we're going to start with the quick pickled rhubarb. It's of very course, quick, yes. 20 minutes. So not long at all. Mm-hmm. We're taking white wine vinegar, put that into a small saucepan with a little bit of caster sugar, a bit of salt and some peppercorns. Bring that to the heat and make sure that everything's dissolved, then remove from the heat. Take your lovely forced rhubarb, about 200 grams, and cut it into 0.5 centimetre slices. So you want to get it nice and thin. Okay. If you do it bigger, you just need to pickle it for a little bit longer. should have warned me I need a ruler for this <laughs> recipe, but okay, yeah. Get your right. tape measure out. Yeah. <laughs> make sure everything is perfectly exact. Um, so slice up the rhubarb, then that goes into your pickling liquid, and it will soften in the heat slightly. Of and course, you want to yes. set it to one side, leave it for 20 minutes until it's nice and soft, and it's imparted a little bit of sweetness a little bit of pepperiness then we're going to leave that so set that to one side whilst we do with the other elements it's got some crunchy honey hazelnuts lovely on top of this so we want to take hazelnuts toast them in a little pan for two to three minutes until they start to smell nice and nutty then add a tablespoon of honey or maple syrup stir it all together and set that to one side that'd be nice by itself I know yeah <laughs> I did have a little snack a little, a little Ooh, nibble of that one yeah a little drink in those yeah I like lovely these. yeah and then when you're ready to kind of assemble your salad and throw it all together you want to take one tablespoon of that pickling liquid so that's really good in dressing so even after this recipe so you can save it and use it in things like salad dressing mm-hmm. that goes in and then we've got basil oil so this is a Waitrose Cook's Ingredients basil oil so it's already they've done the hard work for you they've infused the basil all the way through and it's got such a lovely aroma to it, it smells like summer even though we're not quite there yet yeah <laughs> so we've got three tablespoons of that mix that together for your dressing then big bag of salad goes in there toss it all together that goes into a bowl we're topping that with a burrata put that right in the middle that's kind of like the crown and glory of the salad yeah 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 sprinkle over your pickled rhubarb your nuts a bit of fresh basil and then finally a little bit more basil oil over the top of that I mean you know it's it's all in the construction. It's yeah, it's it's greater than the sum of its parts. Exactly. That's yeah. the thing with good salads. I feel it's all at the end. It's the garnishing. It's the dressing. It's making sure everything's seasoned properly. It makes it better than just a big sad bag. Yes, yeah. but also <laughs> those pops of flavour, like the nuts and the basil and stuff. Those are the sorts of things that really pop in a salad, aren't they? Absolutely. And I really like the pickled rhubarb. And if you don't like rhubarb, things like strawberries would work well in this kind of thing as well. Just something that's vibrant, that's got sweetness to it just works really lovely with creamy things like burrata and you could just use regular mozzarella or you could leave it out entirely if you're not feeling in a cheesy mood but 
I think it works. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, it's it's quite it's quite heavy on salad without the parata yeah, uh, sitting in the middle. Yeah. If you want that full recipe, you can go to waitrose.com/slash/showchef. You can find that recipe and all of Martha's recipes, or you can see how beautiful it would look in the centre of your table if you check out our socials at Virgin Radio UK. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. I'm joined now by Joe and Froggart. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. No, I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, Joanne brings us a just, I mean, it's called breathtaking. It is breathtaking. Uh, a new drama. It's on ITV and ITVX and it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at nine o'clock. Yes. Yes. And I mean, well, describe it and then we'll talk about it because yes, Okay, so Breathtaking is based on a memoir by the same name of a consultant doctor called Rachel Clark. And it's about, it's based on her experiences and the experiences of her colleagues during the height of the pandemic working on the front line of the NHS. So it really is the story we don't know if we were fortunate enough not to have dealings with the hospitals during the pandemic, during the height of the pandemic. Um, This is this is the stuff we didn't know. It's not just a retelling of that time period which we've all lived through. It's very much the inside story of what was really happening to our NHS frontline workers, what they went through, the risks they were put under, the the costs of, you know, for their themselves, emotionally, physically. Um, and, yeah, the, you know, the, the stresses and strains and, and the pain they went through to keep us safe. And it is just an uh, astonishing Trauma. And what's great about it is it's it, it's such recent history, and already I'd forgotten so much of it. Yes, I like it was just you kind of go, oh my god, that happened. Oh, why they did that? Yeah, and and but the but it's, it's human nature because you know it's, we don't it's, want to remember. We don't it. want to anything that's traumatic or negative. You know, it, it's part of our human psyche, isn't it? To to sort of forget because that's how we move on and that's how subconsciously we move on but there's certain things that that mustn't be forgotten and I strongly believe that the story of our NHS is is one of those subjects that really we cannot forget and you play am I right you're a slightly fictionalized version of Rachel Clark yes so the, the decision was made to fictionalize my character as Abby Henderson and also we're in a fictionalized hospital and that was because we wanted to incorporate numerous stories into one um but every single patient story in in breathtaking and every single staff member story actually happened so it's very much a retelling of the truth they didn't all happen in the same hospital but they all happened somewhere in the uk so it's it's yeah it's not fictionalized but my character is and the setting is yeah yeah and i think the you know i'll PPE clearly comes up in this thing and I had no, I forgot again I don't know if I ever knew but I didn't realize that that all happened before the first lockdown yes that, that, that the NHS was you know in such crisis around that so early on yeah and I you know I've said that I was I sort of felt quite disappointed in myself actually when I when I read the scripts that I was fortunate enough not to have dealings with hospitals during the pandemic and you know, the main information we were all getting in lockdown was the press conferences from the government. And, um, you know, you all, we take everything with a pinch of salt, but I was sort of blissfully unaware of the extent of the crisis that the NHS was under. And like you say, even before the height of the pandemic hit. um, And I think it's sort of a 
for me, that's one of the parts of the story that just angers me so much that, you know, not only were our NHS staff sent into these very dangerous situations, some some of them paid the ultimate price of losing their lives to look after us. They were sent in with inadequate PPE, sometimes no PPE at all. But the government then were selling us the story that there's no problem, there's plenty of PPE, there's been a, well, a few problems with delivery, but that's all sorted yeah. now. And that to me is just is just crazy that, you know, as a society, we could have done more. We could have done more to support our NHS had we known. Yeah, but even that terrible thing where they deliberately downgrade the level of PPP it needed. No, you can go in there with a, a plastic apron. That'll be yeah. fine. And these are clinically, you know, clinically... Um, um, you know, prof- clinical professionals who know the dangers and they're being told through the system that, no, you only need level three PPE for aerosol generating procedures. And they know they're in danger. But to sort of not give people the, you know, the choice and their own, you know, their own autonomy in making the decisions about their own safety as well is just it's criminal to me. You know? Yeah. And also, I suppose, because it's intercut with real news footage and the things that were going on, the, the government statements and stuff like that, it, it, it adds a whole other element to it. Yes, and that was very much the, the decision to put those real moments of, of press conference footage in there was very, started very much to be able to connect people from, you know, to the experience we're showing them that they may not have known about inside the hospitals to what most of our own experiences were sat at home watching the news conference footage. But then it sort of um, developed into this very powerful, uh, you know, storytelling structure. And every single um, press conference footage that's used is matched with the timeline of what we're showing in the hospital. So it's not been manipulated for dramatic effect. It's very much within a couple of days of how we're showing the pandemic unfolding in what is a fictionalised London hospital. And you, it kicks off about a month before the first lockdown? Yes, yeah. And then it runs right through to, is it that second, before the third lockdown? Yes, we run right through into the Christmas of 2020, through into the new year of 2021, through to the sort of third lockdown. Yeah. Wow. And for you guys filming it, it must have been like, because watching it is is sort of traumatic. And you kind of think, so for the people who lived through it, it must be awful. They must still be suffering. But for you guys, it must have been quite a, a harrowing shoot. It was a very um, unique experience from an acting experience. It was it was powerful every day. And we had, our set was a disused university building. So our set was what we call a 360 set. So often, you know, you film in one room and you do yeah. all your scenes there and the corridor that takes you to and from that scene, you might shoot two weeks later in a completely different location. Whereas this was a, was a sort of live set. We could walk down the corridor, through A&E, into a ward, straight into recess, and the, le- the set was lit 360, which meant there was no pause for lighting or setup time. So we ran scenes together. That wow. was the decision of our director, Craig Viveros, to keep the energy, to be able to sort of run huge sections together as one. Um, so it was a very surreal experience. It felt... It felt so real at times and knowing that every case where recreating happened it was every day felt extremely uh, to be a sort of very profound experience yeah you can't promise people (laughs) 
<laughs> the best time of their lives. But it's vital they watch it. Yes, I've been saying that obviously everyone's ex- experiences are very personal to themselves and depending on your experiences d- during the height of the pandemic, this show can be incredibly triggering for people. So people must always look after themselves first and their own mental and emotional health. But if people are able to watch, please do, please don't look away because it's so important that we all understand what our NHS has done for us and what they continue to do for us. And it's interesting that the the, the NHS are having a moment, you know, Nye Bevan, they've got that big show at the at the NHS. Uh, there was This Is Going To Hurt, There's Now This. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of great in a way that people are getting this kind of... Uh, you know, no, no rose-coloured glasses look at it. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's important, you know, drama and art is a fantastic way to entertain, but it's also a fantastic way to sort of lead us by the hand and, and show us something and make us emotionally connect with something that we wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. Um, so it can be an incredibly powerful medium in that way. And it's it's very exciting to be a part of something that's doing that. And also, this shouldn't matter, but I do think it's interesting that it's ITV, that ITV have just done, you know, Mr. Bates versus yes. the post office. Now they're doing this. It seems like they're really kind of on BBC turf, that this would, <laughs> you know what I mean? Normally, you'd have thought this, because it's it's not a commercial proposition to do breathtaking. No, but I think maybe because ITV is a commercial channel and, you know, that's how their their funding comes from, from advertising mainly, um, I think that does give them the freedom to be able to, yeah. you know give that voice to to people in in a, in a different way you know without the constraints of you know investors or public funding possibly yeah. and is Rachel Clark still in the uh, in the health service yes absolutely yeah she's had to take holiday leave to do press with us this week so she's very much still seeing patients and doing it all she is an absolute trailblazer yeah. Yeah. and I, I know while the record was on we were talking about you you've seen it now with uh, healthcare workers but did you talk to many before you got involved in Yes, show. absolutely. I obviously spent a lot of time with Rachel Clark and um, we have have to give a shout out to our two incredible medical advisors, Tom Petty and Andrew Cinnamond, who gave us a medical boot camp, downloaded so much information to us to make us the, the most believable healthcare professionals they could. Yeah. And they were on set with us 24-7 and on, you know, on message, on they were so incredible and to have them there and be able to ask them because they worked through the height of the pandemic in the NHS to be able to ask them not only you know the physicalities of how things are looking and how we do this that and the other and how we look like we're doing the procedures correctly but also how did this feel what was this like how did you cope um and without their candidness and you know their experience I, I don't think any of us would have been able to give the performances that we did yeah and also I think it's one of the things where Watching this, because I'm like you, I didn't really experience hospitals during that. I heard stories from friends and everybody. Yeah. And you watch it, you kind of think of all the things we complained about, all yes. the things we complained about during lockdown, all our moans. Yeah. And God, this show makes me feel very small. Yeah. Well, someone said to me, uh, a journalist I was speaking to the other day, she said, oh, I watched it and I thought, Ooh, I sort of reevaluated my life. And I said, well, me too. I said, I pretended to be someone else for a living. What do you think <laughs> I was doing? I was there going, wow. Someone went, was it hard? I went, no, no, no. I wasn't doing it for real. 
world. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, do, it does make us reevaluate things. You know, we're dealing with life and death and we're dealing yeah. with the really big questions in life. And, and such recent history. The show is called Breathtaking. It airs from Monday on ITV1 and ITVX at nine o'clock. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, I really, really hope it gets the audience deserves. Uh, Joanne Frogger, thank you so much for coming to see us and thank you for making the show. Thank you so much, Graham. Thanks so much for listening today. You can catch me every Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 on Virgin Radio. Follow us on all our socials to keep up to date and make sure you check out our YouTube channel too. Just look up at Virgin Radio UK and you'll find loads of great interviews and live sessions. Until next time. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio.